Good morning. Uh, I am Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to be here with you. So I want to begin today by uh, talking a bit about death, in particular about the death of um, you know, Kobe Bryant, the basketball player, his, his daughter, and seven other people who, if you haven't heard the news, died in this um, tragic helicopter accident this last, actually a week ago today. And I have to admit some reluctance on, on my part to bring this up because I know that Kobe is a complicated figure in our public discourse and for a lot of people. And, and I don't know that I'm the best person to speak to all that. Um, of course, I think a lot in particular about the 2004 sexual assault case that he was involved with. And I've read a lot of people uh, try to tackle this aspect of his life um, amongst celebrating him as a basketball player and as a person as well. And for me, I think the most important thing to... Um, acknowledge and remember is that um, this stuff, even when we're remembering someone's life, there are things uh, that brings up for people that um, many of us can't understand, many of us can't relate to, right? And I'm reminded of that as we tell stories and tales of people beloved and famous or otherwise, and as we also try to look at them with, you know, sober, a sober sense, um, at the totality of their imperfectness as human beings, right? No person is, should be just like a footnote in someone else's story, right? And while that, doing that, not doing that goes against, I think, sometimes our, our common nature, I hope we can collectively strive to hold these complex truths together in some way as we, as we talk about this. And so I bring this up really only because, you know, this, uh, my experience with Kobe's death over this week has been uh, nothing short of devastating, and um, I will not cry. If you know me, there are three things that I care about in this world immensely. My friends and family, I'll put them together. This church and this community and all of you, and basketball, <laughs> right? They, these three things basically dominate all my brain, heart, and time, right? And so... I won't tell you what the order is of those three, but just know <laughs> that those are the main three things. And so when the news hit a week ago, you know, I, I was watching TV and scrolling through my Twitter feed and all that stuff, found myself uh, just crying, right? Just crying and crying. And I was pretty like, you know, just kind of like sad and crying a little bit until, you know, my mother called me. Um, and we all have like, hopefully, there's like person in our life that when you're like, holding things back, but they're the one who asks you and you hear their voice, like, how are you? You just like, it all just gets ripped apart. So my mom calls, she's just like, how are you? I don't think she even knew to ask me because she thought I was sad. She just asked that. And as soon as I heard her voice, I was like, ah, mom. I just like crying, a wail erupted out of me. And she was like, what the hell? She thought I was joking for like a minute, but. <laughs> and so for the next three days, I just found myself in this real state of um, persistent grief and mourning, right? I can't remember the last time I was uh, so consistently upset and emotional, right? And I know that might be uh, perhaps weird for some of you. I have myself immediately rolled my eyes at a few times of the sort of outpouring of emotions about celebrity deaths, right? I'm like, oh, all right. But uh, I have spent more time uh, watching Kobe in my life than I have spent with a lot of people 
I've like not uh, hung out with, I've declined parties and uh, people who live with me know like how maddening like my life revolves around watching these Laker games. You can ask Patrick about it. When I think about uh, like the major highs and lows of my life for the last 15 years, Kobe's probably involved in like 50% of them, which is sad, but <laughs> so, so, you know, people were texting me like I lost like a family member, which is, which is also very strange. And so um, it's just been like a, uh, it's been a crazy time. So, you know, and all the, of course, through all of that, I've been thinking about death and grief and um, the question of like, what now? What do we do now? What do I do now? <sighs> just got through that part. All right, so we are just a few weeks, few weeks removed from Lent and uh, Easter, which I would describe as sort of the playoffs and Super Bowl of Christianity in a way. Um, the season of Lent begins at the end of this month and Easter, of course, right after that. And I like to frame Lent as a sort of time of introspection. It's a an honest meditation on what it means to be uh, human beings, right? It means with all our shortcomings, our limitations, uh, which includes, of course, death, right? And that's why it starts off with Ash Wednesday and that famous mantra that many of us have heard, right? You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Most famously, people like give up things like meat or whatever. And this year, we're actually going to have a spiritual practice group for Lent. So if anybody's interested in doing that stuff, Anissa will be leading it. It'll be her first thing. We're all very excited. And then there is, of course, Easter, which is sort of the reverse or uh, the opposite of all that, right? Where um, there's this event that reveals that what we thought were our limitations, our shortcomings, are not actually the end of the story. And every year we go through this process. You know, for many of us who've gone to church for a while, we live through it every time. And my hope is not, is never that we just get this mere reminder of something but that in these ritualized events that we go through, there always is the possibility of some kind of change and transformation. Don't just let me uh, keep it in mind that I'm capable and made for so much more. Like, let me actually live into that over this time. If there's a sort of central question to the work of doing church and community for me, uh, and this should come as no surprise to anybody who's been around here for a minute, it's not to ask whether or not we believe the right things. It is to ask whether or not we can be changed people, changed to love the right things, changed to live for the right things, changed to reflect in that infinite and impossible possibility that comes in the story of Easter for us, right? How do we change? That is the question that bedevils me that I spend my time thinking about, right? How do we see this kind of change in our lives. I have to admit uh, a certain pessimism about, maybe even nihilism about that possibility. Uh, the more you live this life, the more you know how difficult it is for people to change. The science of such things, habits and so forth, the psychology and soci sociology around this stuff uh, is pretty depressing, right? Um, research shows that our neural pathways are like, the Grand Canyon, there are these deep grooves that uh, to change or redirect takes an immense amount of effort. It's not so easy just to decide to do something. It's built into our bodies as much as our psyches and our spirits. 
And the language of modern psychology and so forth is useful, but this is an ancient and old problem, right? We see in the famous words of the Apostle Paul, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And we know what that feeling is like. I think most of us intuitively, we've been there, we've experienced a sense of shame or guilt at failing to live up to whatever thing we want it to be across the spectrum of things from you know, wanting to get fit or just trying to finish some book you started all the way to ridding ourselves of destructive ways of thinking that we know are present for us uh, to the desire to be a more understanding and patient and loving and graceful coworker or friend or child or romantic partner or whatever it may be. In my uh, therapist's office this week, I stood up. I was talking to her, I was sitting down in this chair. I got up out of my chair. I will admit, mo- it was mostly because it was, my back was hurting, but it also made it very dramatic. I popped out and I was like, I need an answer. Give me an answer as to how people change. You've sat here for decades. You listen to these people whine week after week to you. Uh, how they want to be different, how they want their lives to be different. No one, you therapist, knows about the futile nature of trying to change than you, right? What's the secret? How do we get people to change? And I hope that's not you in like 30 years. <laughs> I'll ask you in 30 years. You uh, during the coverage of Kobe's death, I saw a lot of people, most movingly Shaq, Shaquille O'Neal, Uh, I won't assume much basketball knowledge here, but he was a person who played with Kobe famously, and they famously also had beef for a long time. And uh, he talked about how this experience made him not want to have like feuds and grudges in his life anymore. He also talked about how he's normally this kind of person who doesn't really reach out to the people he loves. He keeps busy and so forth, but he was gonna start doing that more, start reconnecting with those people. And as, co- as is common after tragedy, right, we see a lot of people make these kinds of proclamations of, of hearts being turned, right, including myself. I did that this week as well. One thing I took from reflecting on all this stuff and, and Kobe's life is that, um, that I read a myriad of stories, not just from like NBA players or famous people, but also just random people on Twitter who grew up and live in the community that I came from um, talk about meeting him at like a coffee shop or something and how he treated them with this sense of really seeing them and how that affected them. And I came to feel this conviction. I was like, I'm not really like that. <laughs> right? Uh, I thought about how often I'll meet people and um, out in the world, you know, and, and rather than sort of put myself out there in some sort of friendly way, I'll, I'll maybe like size them up or uh, <laughs> think about whether or not they're, they have something they can they can give me or offer me or I can gain through them, right? Or um, I just kind of be an asshole sometimes, right? For sure some of you might have felt this way when you first met me. I apologize, I really do. I hope you know that by now that that's not who I am, but it is true that that is sort of a leading presence sometimes for me. And so there you have my own public statement of change um, to simply try and show some face of love to people I meet whoever they might be. And I'd really rather not have told you about this because, you know, if I fail at it, then there's a lot of public, there's a public nature to that. But uh, I really couldn't make this illustration more concrete without offering at least some experience of mine, right? And so 
Accountability is important. Join the spiritual practice group. That's what it's there for. Uh, so yes, as I mentioned, when dramatic and major things happen in our lives, we see ourselves with this impulse to change, right? Where the world itself has now changed for us. We change because now the world has changed for us. Right? You could think of like even a health scare, a bad breakup, losing a job, so on. These things do this, but nothing does it quite like death. And I don't think it's because death is its own thing. Rather, all this other stuff that changes the world, they're all part of the same species of things. They run along the same current. Death is merely the most stark and unavoidable representation of a certain kind of truth about ourselves and this world. And why is uh, change so hard, right, this question? The pain of dealing with death opens us up to change, but it may be more important to see and acknowledge the way that this relationship is also reversed. Change is difficult and painful because it opens us up to death. We've heard, you hear this story, you hear this idea a lot. Star Wars Episode Eight, Kylo Ren, Kill the Past, all that kind of stuff, right? And it's present so deeply also in our Christian tradition here you grew up in the church, you know this language extremely well. Jesus says, those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. The aforementioned Paul, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Paul again, so if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Paul was really big on this, so I can go on with him, but I'll, I'll cut him off there. Uh, the Christian mystic, St. Teresa, she describes her union, times of union with God like this. The soul is so fully awake as regards God, but wholly asleep as regards things of this world. In short, she is utterly dead to the things of the world and lives solely in God. I do not even know whether in this state she has enough life to breathe. A person who falls into a deep faint appears as if dead. To find God, to meet God, to experience God. It is not, you know, described as if it's this sort of passive thing like getting older, right? This passive movement of matter and time. It is this intense, intense thing, this intense change. New, for new things to come, old things, they say, have to go. And it's easy for us to take these words as just metaphors, but I think they become really, really, really real, not just in the light of actual bodily death, but when we consider truly why change feels so difficult for us. Because, again, if change is a type of death, we know that dying sucks. Death is never easy. Even for someone like Paul, right? He... Uh, that verse about doing the thing that he hates, right? He's writing this within this context. You know, I won't get into it all the time, but it's about the old Hebrew law and what it meant for Jews and how the law is good, but the law revealed sin to him. The whole passage, this like two-chapter thing, it actually reads like a very sort of seventh-grade live blog, journal blog post about how he's this shitty person and feels bad about himself, right? Until Christ saves him. But when you read that, you see the anguish there for him, this turning of himself a dying of an old self into a new thing. To change, we have to let some things go. You could describe these things, these things we let go in a, in a lot of different ways. 
today for me, I want to couch them in the language of story and, and of narrative. When we truly change, I think we are essentially attempting to kill off some story that we've told about ourselves. Some idea of who you think you are, who I think I am, who we think we need to be. You could say that our whole lives are sort of made up of these stories, right? Stories that tell me I am this kind of person. I do these kinds of things. I live this kind of life. If you pay attention to yourself, and some of the people in this room who struggle with anxiety know this more than others, right? You will hear these stories rattling in your brain constantly, right? You hear them flowing through the moments of your life. And as destructive as many of these stories are, and even as we come to grips with uh, the fact that they are in fact destructive, to let those things go still feels like losing a part of ourselves, right? It feels like the death of something that made us feel whole, something that helped us make sense of the world, of our lives. We change when we are willing to let go of some stories so that we might replace them with others. In my attempt to do this, be a kinder, friendlier person thing that I've disclosed to you, I think about the story I've told myself about what it means for me to meet others, a story about uh, trying to navigate this world as a small Asian man, right? Uh, that has to sometimes be an asshole to subvert other people's prejudices, right? This is an ingrained part of my psyche in so many ways. It's a story that runs through my mind a lot. Right? And as much as I know the flaws in that narrative, it is a story so intertwined with me that to let it go feels like some kind of mutilation. We live our whole lives avoiding death, looking away from it. We try to escape it. Uh, this is both true in its physical form as well as its psychic and spiritual one. But when death confronts us as it has for a lot of people this week and it has for so many of us throughout our lives, it suddenly feels like some veil has been pulled back, right? And when we see our lack of power, our lack of control, the tenuous nature of our very existence in these squishy-ass bodies that we live in, right? the sort of Damocles, the Greek mythology hanging over us. We see it all, and the facade of immortality that we sort of have to live into every single day so that we don't lose our minds, right? that story is one that suddenly must be let go to. Or maybe we can say it is taken from us. Maybe people are more willing to let go of certain stories in the face of death because when the story of our mortality rises to the surface, all that other stuff we held on to suddenly seems less important, less important to keep alive. They lose power in some way, right? Death, in some ironic sense, both reveals its great power just as it reveals its limitations as well. Right? The death of one story, painful as it might be, clears the way for another. And I hope by saying that I, I don't come across it all as sort of just painting a rosy picture on top of a pile of shit or something, right? It's truly awful things. Just as no one uh, should be a mere footnote in someone else's story, I'm also reminded of something ta Coates said about um, how no human body should be seen as a mere brick on the path towards a better future for us. 
or progress, right? In other words, the language and reality of death are not just useful. We shouldn't see them as useful things. They are necessary things, right? That distinction is vastly important. We need to remember that too. I leave you with this. Uh, in grief this week, I have found myself not drawn to questions of like theodicy, why God, how do you let these things happen? You know, a lot of writers and NBA players quoting like, you know, God's will and this sort of stuff. I, I didn't think about any of that. Uh, I just was found myself drawn to uh, the simpleness of Jesus' teachings about how we should love and care for one another. A call to change amongst death and dying. And I just wanted to share that call to change as it came to me with you, with my community. And so I've thought most consistently about these two passages. Um, the first is from Christ's words to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, days before his own death. He says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me where I'm going. You cannot come. A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And also this passage in Ephesians. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may be benefit to those who listen. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. We like to complicate things at this church, sort of what we do best. But sometimes you just need to let that simple idea be true. Sometimes in moments where you need it the most. Whatever the stories that we have inside of us that prevent us from living in this life, uh, living into this life of love and compassion, let us work to let them go. Death is about change. Changes about death, and there may be nothing we can really do about that. But as we march towards Easter on the horizon, I am reminded, uh, still, hopefully, that that's not the end of the story. Right? There's always a new one for us to write, uh, and to find, and to tell. Amen. <laughs>